Okay, well, I hear him getting started, so maybe I'll get started. Um, my name is Laurel Marr, and I said in my introduction out there, I actually am on staff here at Calvary St. George's, and um, this is St. George's Church. Calvary Church is about half a mile away, and um, our history that we're so proud of there is, um, is Bill Wilson, along with Sam Shoemaker, who was the rector of Calvary Church, um, in 1925, the years 1925 to 19, 1952, um, they, uh, Bill Wilson and Sam Shoemaker became very good friends, and um, and Sam helped um, form the spiritual aspects of the steps of the twelve steps. And uh, so, so we like to say that the program, or I can feel confident in saying the program, the twelve steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, got its spiritual roots at Calvary Church, and. Um, it, we also say that steps four through nine were written in Sam Shoemaker's office at the time. He and Bill met there all the time and talked about recovery. And um, that office today is actually my boss's office, Jacob Smith. And um, we have a, a really awesome photograph of Sam Shoemaker in that office with his um, with his writing on it, so it's 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 pretty cool. And actually, a lot of people come and want to see um, our archives. We don't have a great set of archives on on uh, Sam Shoemaker's work, but we do have a little bit. And um, I, I guess I just stress this to tell you the importance that um, a program such as the Twelve Steps. You know, just the um, I have a couple quotes in my in my talk of just the the uh, profound recovery experience that people find through um, the 12-step program that cannot be found anywhere else. And uh, so I think it's, um, it's pretty special to be, to be sitting on a history like that, especially for me because I am a recovering addict. And um, so um, I have a couple big terms in this. I always find when I go to Mockingbird, it's always very into... Uh, highly intellectual, and I, um, we've probably been hearing really highly intellectual talks all day, so I will do my best to define these terms before I go on and keep talking about them. Um, <laughs> but please feel free at the end if you want to ask questions. Um, we, can, we can have time for that. So um, um, I'm going to start by reading um, a, a couple lines from a song. Many of you guys have maybe heard of it. It's actually a Hillsong song called Hosanna, and it's kind of funny I would choose it because I'm not really charismatic. Um, but this song, this is the second verse, says, I see a generation rising up to take the place with selfless faith, with selfless faith. I see a new, a new revival stirring as we pray and seek. We're on our knees, we're on our knees. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. That's written by a girl, Brooke Frazier. And while, um, like I said, I'm not a charismatic, I think perhaps she has a little bit of a vision here. And that's going to make me also give a disclaimer that um, I'm not intending my talk by any means to be prophetic, I am, because I'm not a charismatic, per se. But I, I am being creative. And I am, um, I said in my introduction out in the sanctuary, that um, I'm choosing two books. Um, I met the Zoll family when I was 18, living in Birmingham, Alabama, where I grew up. And um, so now I'm 40. And so um, 22 years later, I've written a paper using um, 
uh, Reverend John Zoll's book and um, his brother, the Dr. Simeon Zoll, his book. And so um, actually I found Grace and Addiction by crazy happenstance and um, actually Googling a different book called Addiction and Grace. And Grace and Addiction came up. I ordered it and started reading it, and it started having all this information about Calvary Church. And I thought, well, this is strange. I'm reading this book. I'm totally an addict, and I cannot help myself. And it's got my church mentioned in it. Like, it must be providential. And that was about five years ago. And, um, and so when, um, and then last year at Mockingbird at this conference, um, John gave a fabulous introduction to his brother Simeon's talk and, and mentioned that his brother was um, running a, a distance learning master's program, which I'm interested in. And so in the, in the past year, I've gotten to know Simeon, and he sent me his dissertation. And so after reading both, I just came up with this concept. So we'll see how it goes. Um, so let me talk about theology of the cross for a second and theology of glory. So the theology of glory would be all of the theologies that are not the theology of the cross. The theology of the cross says that God refuses to be known by in, in any other way than the cross. Suffering comes about because we are at odds with God, so we suffer the sovereign working of God. This is not a, a, not a sentimental theology at all. It's, it's, it's a little bit of a hard theology, but it's a true theology. It's one we come to experience the working of God in our lives as sinners. So the theology of theologies of glory, all other theologies, are teachings that still hold the belief that after the fall, the human will still has some ability to choose God or to help itself. These theologies look behind the cross for another answer than what the cross provides. And this answer is that we are sinners in need of an outside intervention, and the cross is that intervention. So if we look behind it or around it for another answer, it's we are avoiding looking at the cross. And, but we also can't choose to look at the cross. The cross is brought to us, and in the sovereign, unsentimental working of God, we have no option but to see the cross. So it's nothing that we must do is to become a theologian of the cross. Being, Coming a theologian of the cross is something that is done to us. So Martin Luther says that the soul's thirst for glory is not ended by satisfying it, but rather by extinguishing it. So a little bit about me is that um, prior to actually being on staff at Calvary St. George's, I began um, leading the healing prayer ministry team when uh, I... They had someone come in and start it, and we knew she was only going to be there for a few months, and so I was asked if I might be interested in working with her, and then when she had to leave, then I would take over her leadership and be in charge of the, um, the ministry. And so that's been about four years, and um, so she got me started, and I um, you know, was reading through the materials, and with my own experience in my life of being an addict, I was finding that the um, contemporary healing materials provided by the church, the Episcopal Church in this sense, were not, um, they weren't enough for me. So, I mean, if, you know, if I couldn't find healing there, what the heck was I going to do with myself? And um, so, so now I've come to learn that I disregard any claims that might give me healing without suffering. 
It's not because I like suffering, but it's because that, well, it's really, I don't like suffering. I hate it. And that I will do anything to not suffer, but that is not the way that God usually has his way with us when he is doing this, this work in our lives. So about five years ago, I was caught up in a, a, a specific theology of glory. This is one that uh, says I still have some ability to help myself. And, um, <laughs> and the deal was, as you said this prayer, and it was supposed to put you in the flow of God's will. And so if, you, so if you, life wasn't going good, you weren't in the flow. So I thought, well, things aren't working for me, so I must just not be in the flow. So I said this little prayer, and um, sure enough, you know, through some kind of experiences that began to happen, I began to realize I was completely powerless to help myself. Then I found John Zoll's book, thankfully, and I was able to admit my powerlessness to help myself through the first step. And, um, and as I worked through these steps, I can come to see that this flow that um, we actually think of when we think of God's will, perhaps, is really step three of Alcoholics Anonymous, of the 12 steps. We decided to hand our will over to the care and keeping of God as we understand him to be. This care and keeping will always present to us life in the cross. So that is the start. And now we are going to talk about um, John's book, Grace and Addiction. And so we're going to learn a little bit more about addiction and what recovery means. So because recovery from alcohol is the origin of the 12 steps, I do refer to AA frequently. But many important recovery groups have um, come out and used these, these exact same 12 steps. And the 12 steps are just as effective for any, any addiction that, other than, than alcohol. So a, a few other ones are OA, which is Overeaters Anonymous, NA, which is nar Narcotics Anonymous, all right? Okay. Um, Gamblers Anonymous, um, I think the, I've heard the fastest growing group is like Sex Addiction, addiction Anonymous. And um, even many non-addicts will identify with the program as a way to live in the service of their neighbor rather than themselves. So I just, I want to say this, so if anyone came, they don't feel like they're out of place here if you don't need to be in a 12-step recovery um, program yourself. So, but for the addict, the pathway to recovery begins with defeat. It is here that hopeless, unmanageable lives are traded for lives of hope, hope freedom, and joy. So 1 Corinthians 1, 26 tells us that. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and he chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Bill Wilson, or Bill W., as a lot of people in recovery will refer to him, echoes this verse in his words on recovery. The principle that we should find no enduring, enduring strength until we first admit, admit complete defeat is the taproot from which our whole society has sprung and flowered. A couple other um, amazing, profound comments made on AA is from Austin McCormick. He was the former commissioner of correction in New York City. He said that AA may prove to be one of the greatest movements of all time. Another one, Dr. Patrick Carnes, a renowned addiction researcher, calls the 12 steps the most important invention of the 20th century. So something that differs um, in the, the 12 steps, uh, well, I guess John's book is about how the 12, how like a 12-step program and the church can kind of help each other. 
And um, so, so one of the things that, that is important to keep in mind about AA and the 12 Steps is they're not part of an organized religion. It operates very much like a church in the fact that there is a gathering of people from different backgrounds coming together to pray and talk about faith and God's work in their lives. And um, there, so this is a, a really um, profound um, fellowship that is going on amongst uh, these, these men and women in recovery. So, and this talk about God in recovery is talk about God as the rescuer of troubled people. Fundamentally, addiction is man's conflict with God and his inability to surrender his prerogative. We're not free to choose God, and we're not free to choose sobriety. So the 12 steps gives us a true experience and understanding of God outside of the church, which is really important because a lot of people there have most likely been burned by church or religion that has not worked for them. And, um, and speaking of the ministry of AA, Reverend Zoll says, it is like God cut out a piece of his heart and put it in the church basement. So the working of the steps is what happens when we're under God's grace. It is not something that precedes the attainment of grace. This grace says we don't have to save ourselves. It says that God has come to us, and there's nothing we must do to receive his grace. He is found in the midst of our weakness, not our strength. And it has been said that God's office door is at the end of our rope. All right, so I'm going to move on and talk about Christoph Blumhart. This gets into Dr. Zoll's... Um, Simeon, the youngest brother of the Zoll family, gets into his dissertation, which has um, got a really long title. Um, it is, it is um, Pneumatology and the Theology of the Cross, and it is um, from the work of Christoph Blumhart, who lived um, 1842 to 1919, and he, in, um, it's, it's the... the um, the work of the Holy Spirit between Wittenberg, that's where Martin Luther was when he nailed his um, theses on the church door, and Azusa Street. Now, Azusa Street, I believe, was 1906 in L.A., and that is what we say is the beginning of the Pentecostal movement. So, so the, the, the point of the dissertation here is to look at Martin Luther and his sola scriptura, scriptura and look at Pentecostals and their um, unmediated experience with God, these completely different opposite things. And, and Dr. Zoll believes that actually Christoph Blumhart is kind of a bridge that will divide the, or that would bring together these divided theologies. So, um, but that's not really, we're not going to talk about mu that much today. That's just an introduction to what the, his d dissertation is about. I've actually gone into chapter two of the dissertation and pulled out um, a concept I found very interesting, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So, um, so Christoph Blumhart, he was the son of a well-known healer, um, and in a, a healer as in like an exorcist, um, the, the kind of healer that casts out demons and that we see a lot of that talk in Pentecostal circles today. And so um, he did share several aspects of his father's theology, namely in his eschatological outlook. Eschatology is the part of theology concerned with death, judgment, and the final destiny of the soul. This would be um, the eschaton, the last day when Jesus returns and fulfills the kingdom of God. So, um, so he shared several aspects of his father's theology, and namely in this eschatological outlook. And both of the Bloomhards 
believe there was a stalling of this eschaton or this last day for God's kingdom to be fulfilled with the return of Christ. Their theological belief was that there were supernatural forces opposed in battle against Christ and the kingdom of God. But in 1888, Christoph, the son, turned from his father's teaching and declared in what, he, what is termed a Sturban theology, Sturban means dying, in his death theology, that it is actually not supernatural forces that are opposed in battle against Christ. It is actually the sinful heart of mankind. And that is what is in opposition to the kingdom and its fulfillment. So Blumhart, the younger Blumhart, Christoph Blumhart says, it is more important that the Savior conquer us then he continued to turn against the devil. Die so that Jesus may live was Bloomhart's call to his congregation and expectation that this first step towards the, that the first step towards this eschatological fulfillment begins with Christ being able to live on earth. So he says, therefore, the arrival of the Savior in the midst of those who await him is the beginning of the redemption of the world, the beginning of salvation of all humanity. So according to Bloomhart, this Sturban, this dying, is the condition that must be met before the fulfillment of the kingdom. Bloomhart believed it is through our death that Christ has a pathway into the world leading to further movement in the kingdom of God. But he asked, who is it that, or we ask, who is it that must die? Bloomhart did not expect all Christians, much less the entire world, to participate and open this pathway. Bloomhart, the younger Bloomhart Christoph, like his father, believed there is a little flock, a faithful remnant that still seeks the kingdom. For Bloomhart, this dying is something that belongs at first only to a few. That is quotes. That's what he says. Dying is something that belongs at first only to a few. Only a few are called to take on the work for the kingdom of God. This little flock is a group that stands in for the world, dying so that Jesus may live. Once God has a group in which he can live, he is free to spread his message and his will. So this message, this Sturban theological message of Bloomhart on dying is directed at what he believes to be a lost Christianity. He, during his day, really believed that, as we might think today, with all of our division in the church, that, um, that Christianity... Um, was, was, was lost. And um, he actually believes that God, and he knows, God is free to act through whatever means he wishes. But Bloomhart was of little hope that God might use the institutional church as the vessel for the realization of the kingdom. In his frustration that Christ had become dead to Christianity, Bloomhart radically claims the whole of Christianity to this point must be crucified with us on the cross. The kingdom can move forward once again when a little flock of faithful men and women come to understand the problem of the flesh and put it to its rightful place, which is the care and keeping of God. Bloomhart's theology is consistent with the theology of the cross because our dying is patterned after the cross of Christ where God is most reliably present. It is in this dying experience that we are humbled, that we truly suffer and that our will is thwarted. All right, so 
maybe hanging around Mockingbird. So we're ending on Bloomheart for a few minutes. Maybe while um, being around Mockingbird, you've heard of um, Gerhard Forday. I know his work pops up sometimes I see on the, the website. Um, so I'm going to speak about him a little bit. He's written a really great book called On Being a Theologian of the Cross. That's actually where I um, pulled my definitions of theology of the cross and theology of glory. And um, he writes... Um, he gives us a, a really good. He gives us really good material because a lot of Luther's work has not been translated into English, or if it is, it's lost a lot of its context. And so, Forday really works on recovering what a theology of the cross is. And so, and they probably actually have this book upstairs on the book table because I know it's a favorite. Um, so, so Forday tells us recovery is an intervention from without. It is the creator saving creature. It is only by grace and mercy that the disease of addiction can be fought. I spoke on my recovery here at this conference two years ago, and um, I said, this is what I said about my healing. This was after I found that, car- or that contemporary healing methods weren't, um, were d- d- weren't deep enough to deal with the actual disease of, of addiction. By no means can we do this in our own strength. By way of a holy anguish, Christ has separated me from the ailment of my sin. It is like he is a skilled surgeon who has removed a dangerous cancer that will quickly return unless I remain under his cure. This intervention humbles us because we can no longer believe that there is anything within ourselves that will help us. There's nothing to claim but grace. And to even try and save a little bit of myself is to refuse God's grace. As painful as this is, it is the beginning of hope. In Luther, in Martin Luther's Heidelberg Disputation, his thesis number 14 states that after free will, or free will after the fall has no power to do good in an active, in a past, excuse me, I have to start over, sorry. Free will after the fall has power to do good only in a passive capacity. It can always do evil in an active capacity, which is truthful but scary, scary but truthful. So this is to say we can only do good when acted on from without. So there must be a rescue for us because there's no capacity within ourselves to stop our drinking, to stop our drugs, or to stop our sin. So before the fall, the creature was not even meant to stand alone, but to be one through whom the creator works. This, the fall is the creature's attempt to claim something for the self before God. The relationship to God is seen on the basis of law and works. The problem of sin goes deeper than just our individual sins, like addiction to alcohol and drugs. It is our captivation with an active capacity to works. And believe it or not, here good works done in an active capacity are done for ourselves, not for our neighbor. And they are done in a selfish, it is a selfish unfaithfulness that's played out as piety. Forday tells us that God works humility in all sinners. This is the good work we are called to do. So a little summary, because I've said a lot. Um, Let's talk about um, Reverend John Zoll's book, Grace and Addiction, for just a second, is that he says, through the words of Bill Wilson, that defeat is what must be admitted if there is any hope of restoration and healing. And that is absolutely true. It is... uh, embraced and so 
uh, seen in millions of addicts in recovery. And so um, think in a minute about Christoph Blumhart and his concept that he shared with his father on the little flock, which is a, a group, a faithful remnant, where dying is going on, the sturban, dying so Christ may live, um, is the pathway that Christ will use into the world to further the kingdom of God and bring the eschaton, which is the final day, and the completion of the kingdom. So I just wanted to say those two little pieces from each um, book, um, Grace and Addiction and Dr. Zoll's dissertation. And now we're going to talk about Sam Shoemaker a little more so, and see if we can like tie it all together. Okay. So, his, so Sam Shoemaker wrote a pamphlet, I think it was in the 70s, What the Church Has to Learn from AA. And it's interesting because John's book is saying, you know, they can help each other. Sam Shoemaker here is saying the church really needs to learn from AA. And Christoph Blumhardt is saying that he's not even sure God's going to use the institutional church as it is to bring about this fulfillment of the kingdom. So we'll see if Sam Shoemaker, who is our Calvary hero, can tie all this together for us. Um, so he says, now perhaps the time has come for the church to be reawakened and revitalized by those insights and practices found in AA. He suggests it might sound horrifying to good Christian folks, and he quotes this. What have we, and this is what good Christian folks would say, what have we who have always been a decent people have to learn from a lot of reconstructed drunks? This question reveals how very far we are from the spirit of Christ and his gospel. Addicts who come to a 12-step program are desperate, and they're looking for redemption. They're not looking for religion. An addict is staring death in the face, and the program is their only hope of renewal. There's no need to recreate, in my opinion, no need to recreate or Christianize the 12-step program. A lot of churches do this. It's, in my opinion, not necessary. I really feel through experience the gospel is completely spoken and embedded in the 12 steps. God, as we understand him to be, is God as he reveals himself to these broken sinners. He's not a vending machine God who gives us what flavor we choose, but he's a personal savior who died to save us from the curse of sin and death. Some addicts may not proclaim this God to be the incarnate Christ, but they have experienced his saving grace, regardless if they know him as Christ today or not. What we're surprised to learn is that our self-righteous behavior and beliefs are more dangerous than, than our drunkenness and our drug addictions and every other addiction we carry. They scream for our need for Christ, and the addict is one who sees themselves as they truly are before God. This leads to the chance of a real conversion, which leads to a new life. So to sit in a 12-step meeting and hear stories of those in transformation from this old life of addiction to the new life of sanity is the same, and, and, and healing and recovery, is the same as to read healing accounts found in the gospel. Addicts in recovery live to extend this help of recovery to their neighbors. It's part of staying sober. To keep it, you've got to give it away. 
a story that comes to mind, I wasn't there, but a friend in recovery um, gave me just like a teeny clip of a, of a, of a, of a I think, a anniversary story that he heard that um, I guess kind of helped grow this concept for me. It was a man who was homeless at one time. He lived in dumpsters, he ate trash, and he ate dog food. And 20 or so years later, he was standing on the day, 20 years or 30 years of his anniversary of recovery from alcoholism and drug addiction and with a f new life. He had really been given a new life. And I mean, I think that uh, that is, that speaks to me as just a modern day version of something we would read in the gospel accounts of these healings that Christ came and, and did for, um, for his creation on earth before he went to the cross. So we ask, especially in contemporary healing prayer ministries, we ask, where is God in his healing power today? The Bible tells us he restores sight to the blind and speech to the mute, and he does. In recovery, we see that he restores sanity to the insane, which is really all, all the same. Through recovery, God begins to restore us to the fullness of our humanity because he has restored us to righteousness in Christ. In Christ, we can begin to know what it is to be human. He is the human being that we were created to be. He is the second Adam. He is, he is the creature we were created to be that has complete dependence upon the Father. This passive righteousness through faith that we receive on behalf of Christ is what returns us to creation. So our new this new relationship to God that is made available to us in Christ creates for us a new relationship to the world. So I'm going to end this with a quote by Bloomhart that just, I guess, kind of goes back to the beginning of my paper where I talk about I, I can't, um, I must disregard claims that give me healing without suffering because of my own experience. So Bloomhart says, what we notice when we observe the lives of true apostles and prophets is the pain of childbirth, a struggle for something that does not yet exist, but for the sake of which they are willing to give up everything they have. Although they may find a kind of peace with God in this struggle, the reliable mark of the Holy Spirit at work is not so much divine peace such as, as much as birth pangs. Were the pangs to cease and only peace remain, it would soon turn out to be a false peace, like a woman whose birth pangs cease and her child is stillborn. So that's what I got. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you.